This is episode number 95, Double Hip Surgeries, Expectations, and Comebacks with World Cup Cyclocross racer Courtney McFadden. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. You know, I think a lack of expectation can be very, very beneficial in that you don't overthink anything. You just go out there, you race your bike to the hardest of your capability, and you leave it all out there. Whereas when you go into a race with expectations, and this is where I've had to try and kind of shift my mindset a little bit. And I'm stoked you're here. If this is your first time to the podcast, a super special welcome to you. The show is creeping up on its two-year birthday, and I can't believe that it's been going for two years. It's been a wild ride getting to talk to so many incredible and smart and inspiring writers and athletes and psychologists and physiologists and just some incredible people out there. And thank you so much for being a huge part of it. And you guys are the reason why I do this. So thank you. If you've been enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really simple. You just open up the app and under search, you type in my name, The Sonia Looney Show, and it takes about five seconds to leave a five-star rating or even typing out a review, which I love reading, and it helps me stay motivated and excited. So thank you so much for those of you who have let me know that you're listening and who have posted screenshots on your social media accounts and shared the show with your friends. It's massively impactful, and I just wanted to say thanks. Before I get into it with this week's guest, I have a couple of announcements to make. The first announcement, if you didn't hear on last week's episode, is I just came out with my very first cookbook. It's a digital cookbook, so all you have to do is go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T.com, and look for the Plant Power Tribe cookbook. There are 22 recipes in there, and I designed this cookbook with expediency in mind so that you don't have to spend a ton of time cooking, and I wanted to make sure that the meals were well-rounded, nutritious, and delicious. So if you guys want to check out the Plant Power Tribe cookbook, it's a good price. It's $11.99, and it'd be really fun to see what you guys think. Second, I am in Cape Town, South Africa right now. I am just arriving And I am doing the Cape Epic, an eight-day mountain bike stage race in Cape Town across a bunch of the different regions of this area. And it's my first time racing the Cape Epic. It's not my first time racing in South Africa, however. And I'm racing with an amazing woman named Catherine Williamson. She's from the UK, and she and I have raced against each other in places like Mongolia, South Africa, and Colombia. So I think we're going to make a really good team, and we're going to have the most fun out of anybody out there. If you want to follow the race, make sure you are on my social media, especially my Instagram. It's at Sonia Looney one, the number one and check it out. I'd love to hear what you guys think of this race. And I'll be doing a special edition podcast to do a race analysis and talk about the experience of being at the biggest stage race in the world. Okay, so let's get into this week's guest, Courtney McFadden. Courtney McFadden is a force to be reckoned with in the cyclocross world. You may have seen her racing World Cups in Europe, on podiums at the biggest cyclocross races in the United States, and also on the mountain bike. Courtney's success has had its share of setbacks and comebacks. Many of us have had the experience of dealing with injuries that prevent us from riding, and it's always a challenge, both mentally and emotionally. Seriously, guys, we've all been there. We've all been hurt. We've all been sick. We've all just had these things that make us feel like we're getting behind. In Courtney's case, she had two hip surgeries, 21 months apart. So first on one hip and then on the other hip. And while trying to recover from these surgeries, she was also trying to get fit in time for the next race season. So that's kind of hard whenever you put kind of a timeline on your recovery process. But all of us have big goals, especially pro racers where it's your job to be racing So I can't imagine what that must have been like, but I was following her journey and I was so impressed with her commitment to recovery, her commitment to PT, which most of us have PT programs we're supposed to be doing. And I know that I really struggle with sticking with it. And in Courtney's case, with her double hip surgeries, she couldn't walk, she couldn't ride a bike for months. And in this episode, we talk about how she managed expectations, hope, 
how she dealt with disappointment and also how to deal with the mental side of things when you're on the couch, unable to move and you see all of your competition out there training and working hard. We also talked about what it's like to race cyclocross and travel in Europe. This episode is especially great for anybody who is currently dealing with an injury or has had one and is just having a really difficult time pulling themselves out of the mental funk. It can feel really isolating to be injured and knowing that others are going through what you're going through, especially at the highest level of sport, can provide some relief and make you not feel so alone. The pressure of both internal and external expectations and how we choose and try to deal with them really help define our experience. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let's get into it. Here is Courtney McFadden. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. It's fun to get to chat again. It's kind of funny because I feel like I know you really well, but I was thinking about it and you and I have only like spent time in person like once or twice. Right? It's, it's so true. I kind of feel that same way too. <laughs> I know. That means we're doing a good job, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And I love following your Instagram stories in particular, and especially through everything you've been through in the last couple of years. It's really inspired me in a lot of ways. So I was excited to have you on the show. And in doing so, I did a lot of extra research on you and I learned so much about you. So it's been really cool. Awesome. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah. And you're just fresh off a European trip. Yeah, I was five weeks in Europe. Wow. Was it Spain or were you kind of all over? I was kind of all over. So I started in Belgium and I did, I intended to do the Christmas block of racing there. I ended up just doing three races. I did the Zolder World Cup and then the Ozencross and Loan Out and then Ball. And that was the New Year's Day race. And then I spent a couple of days in Belgium there kind of checking out areas that I had never been before. I think with my biggest goal for that five-week trip in Europe was to have some experiences in Europe that I don't typically do when I go over there for racing. It's always kind of like head down, focus on racing. And to me, it's always made the trips over there a little bit more tedious and just more challenging to get through. And so I wanted to look at it obviously as a racing trip with the focus on racing, but I wanted to get out and explore areas that I hadn't been before. So I checked out in Belgium after the racing. I did a day in Bruges and took the train in there and that was really fun. And then also did a day out to the Belgian coast to the, to this little town city uh, I'm going to call it a town called Kanoki. It was so cool. It was like way cooler than I anticipated. And I thought it was beautiful. The sun had come out. It had rained a little bit, but the sun was out. There was rainbows. I've been told that that's the wealthy area in Belgium. And it was something I'd never would have expected to see in Belgium. Cause I'm so used to just like all these farm fields and, um, you know, little tiny farm roads. And there was like these perfectly manicured lawns and yards with these big, beautiful homes and endless shopping uh, stores down these blocks. And it was really cool. And then ended up heading down to Malaga, Spain and for 12 days. That part of the trip was to get out of kind of rainy, dreary, cold Belgium to get some sunshine to train in before the final two World Cups of the season. So then after Malaga, we flew back to Belgium, picked up the van and drove south to Pontchateau in France and did the World Cup in France and then drove back up to Belgium and stayed in Belgium until the Hoogerheide World Cup, did the World Cup and then flew home. That sounds like an awesome and action-packed trip. <laughs> it was definitely action-packed. It was good. I find that, you know, if you're going to do those long trips away from home, that look at each little part as a mini trip, and it kind of helps the time go by to hopefully not get as homesick. Was your husband with you for any or, or all of it? He was not. So it was just my mechanic, Jerome, and I. Awesome. And then like there were other U.S. racers and there was a nice, there's a big contingent of U.S. racers that went to Malaga. So that was pretty cool. fun to kind of get together with everybody. Yeah. And can you paint a picture of what it's like to race a World Cup cyclocross race in Europe? Because it's, from my understanding, it's quite different from racing over here. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so I always like to tell people that when you do these World Cups, you're racing against like 10 of you. Because when you think about it, 
it's every country's best racer. And so if you think of how many countries are in the World Cup, that's who you're going to be racing against. And so it's going to be 10, 11, 12, however many countries are there of you. And so there's always somebody to race with. There's always little groups. It's very aggressive compared to the U.S., especially the starts. And that was something I kind of forgot about in my first race over there at the Zolder World Cup is I got off to this mediocre start and it that ended up being a pretty good start because there was a pile up to the right of me. <laughs> uh, but then <laughs> I was like, oh, good. I picked the right side. <laughs> but then and it like part of this could have been jet lag, too, because I raced the I got there on a Monday and the race was a Wednesday. But like you'd be going through like following these the taking this perfect line and then you have like five people come at you from each side just dive bombing you into the corner. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, okay. So I went from like 30th to 50th <laughs> in the course of like four turns. So that's that's always a wake-up call just to remember how aggressive you have to be at the start of those races. That like literally every second that you are racing you have to be on it and you have to be aggressive and you have to hold your ground because the races are short. Like they're, you know, 40 to 50 minutes and it's pinned out the whole time. Um, it's never gonna, and um, like in the U S they kind of erase a string out after a couple of laps and you end up racing by yourself a lot. And so over there, there's always going to be somebody that you're battling with. So you're full gas, literally just, you know, <laughs> eyes in the back of your head just going for it the whole time so whenever people are all going for the same line and you have to be aggressive like do you have to be willing to crash like you just stay there and if they run into you they run into you yeah yeah (laughs) which I am not willing to crash and so I think that you know I tend to or I feel like I can get pushed around a lot that way by the end of the trip I was feeling a lot more aggressive and just a lot a lot better with um, handling that and being okay with it Yeah. And then also, you know, talking about people racing all around you, it happens in a lot of, especially I think in women's racing, but there's like, it it does open up quite a bit. So you're kind of racing yourself in a lot of ways. And when there's people around you, it kind of affects how you feel. So how did you deal with that? How did you change or did you change anything whenever there's people around you? Yeah, I found for myself when there's people around me, it's like this mindset that you have to have, because especially if somebody's coming up and they're passing you, or they're going to get in front of you, like you really have to, you might be on the the edge, and you have to be able to just dig deep a little bit more to want to stay on their wheel. But then it's also this fine line where you're like, are they going to blow up? Or am I going to blow up? Because right, like, where are you at? And kind of knowing how much energy do you have to give? in this particular race and where you're at in the race. So like a good example would be at the Pontchateau World Cup, I was riding with two other people and I felt like I wanted to go a little bit faster through some of the downhills. And so I, you know, did an acceleration to get in front and then I was hoping maybe I'd be able to get in a little bit of a, a gap on them. And I did, but then they cashed back up. And then I was like, oh, no, I am so tired <laughs> and ended up kind of burning too many matches. And in that where, like, I should have just let them kind of lead me through because it's, you know, less energy expenditure when you're following wheels than when you're in the front And so it is. It's, you know, I feel like every race can be a learning experience and knowing, like, kind of knowing where your body is at, where you're at physically and where you're at mentally and dealing with that mentally. Because sometimes, you know, if you're in a headspace where you're not maybe in the best headspace and somebody comes by you, you could end up just letting them go. And then you just end up fading back. Whereas like maybe you had the energy, you just didn't have the mental capacity to stay with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also another thing, I had a really interesting guest. He's done a lot of research on the topic of mental fatigue and how mental fatigue contributes to a higher perception of effort. So if your brain is tired from something, even like jet lag would be a great example. Your perception of how how much it hurts and how hard you're going and how much you have left is actually altered from that. So I was just reading that. Who was your guest? Uh, his name is Walter Stiano, and he's worked with Samuel Marcora. So they're they're kind of like the leaders in that area. Yeah, that's so yeah. cool. I was just reading about that, actually, and I <laughs> found that so fascinating. 
but it's believable. I would absolutely believe that. And it's, you know, it's funny because they're, I always say this to my husband that like after long training days or, you know, when you put in a big block of training, which I'm sure you can relate, like I always just say my brain is tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I can't even imagine like actually doing something, you know, not that, you know, right. Training obviously requires mental energy to stay focused on what you're doing, but like, you know, people who hold an eight to five job and then, need to go go train at the end of the day or something would be challenging yeah and even on race day like last year I did a stage race in Spain and the starts were quite a bit later than what I was used to it started like 10 or 11 so I was like well sweet I'll just get some work done beforehand so I was like working before the race and then after learning about mental fatigue I was like crap why was I doing that <laughs> I was fatiguing myself before I even started yeah. another yeah. thing that I, I love that you said is like whenever you're racing like neck to neck with somebody, it's like guessing who's going to blow up first. Cause I think a lot of times people think that if somebody's passing them or somebody's caught up to them, it's easy to get demoralized and just assume that everybody else is faster than you and that they're just stronger than you. But it's a good point that maybe they're not stronger than you. Maybe they just caught up to you and they're just dying to hang on. Absolutely. Exactly. I agree. So for people who aren't familiar with cyclocross, can you give a brief overview of what the sport is? <laughs> so I like to call it a silly little sport because <laughs> it kind of is when you watch it. But, you know, I first like to describe the bike to people and I describe it to as if a mountain bike and a road bike had a baby, you would have a cyclocross bike that resembles more of a road bike to the naked eye that they don't really know the difference between a cross bike or a road bike they would think it was a road bike but you know the bike's got knobby tires or disc brakes the geometry is going to be different than a road bike there's going to be a lot more clearance for mud since we race in um, the fall and winter and it can be anywhere between 80 you know hot and sunny and dry and dusty and fast to snow and ice and anything in between The courses are run circuit style, so we do laps. The women race generally for 40 to 50 minutes, and the men race for an hour. And it's done, you know, in the U.S., it tends to be done in, um, like, city parks, locally, grassroots racing. There's been some times at schools we've had in the area where I'm at. And then, you know, somewhere in Europe, you get, like, the Zolder World Cup is at a Formula One racetrack, Um, You get a lot of races that are just in farm fields. (laughs) And so it just kind of depends where it's at. And then part of the race will be off of your bike. So there might be barriers or what do people call them? Planks (laughs) that you have to get off of your bike to either run over or if you can bunny hop them, then you can bunny hop the barriers. Or like me trip Uh, and fall over them. Yeah. (laughs) I actually have a video of myself tripping and falling on my face and like I was all excited and I was wearing a cape so it made it even better but yeah (laughs) falling's not recommended (laughs) yeah falling is not recommended on the barriers you can you know if you want to add a little enjoyment for the spectators (laughs) there might be a steep hill that's not rideable that you have to get off and run up the hill and carry your bike and then there can be sand, pavement, grass, mud, and everything in between. So why did you choose cyclocross? Like, I know you've done road cycling, mountain biking. Like, why did you choose cyclocross? I started on the road and got into road biking that way. And then my now husband did cross. And I was like, you know, that doesn't look like he told me I would think it was really fun and that I would love it. Because at the time I had tried road racing and I didn't really like it that much because I just like, I want to get on my bike and if I'm racing like I want to, I just want to go and I want to race all out. I know exactly (laughs) what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) And road racing, that's not it. And so it took him a couple of years of me watching him race cross before I decided to try it. So then I got into cross next after road biking and I did one race and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and I loved it. So then that next year I did like my first season during cross. I think I did like maybe five races. And then that next summer I got a mountain bike cause I was a little bit more open to, so I'd been really nervous about off road riding. So I was like, like mountain biking to me, it just sounded so scary. Mm-hmm. And I did, wasn't really 
I didn't want to try it yet. So then after doing cross, it kind of opened up my eyes to just a whole other avenue of riding your bike. And so then I was like, you know, I do want to have a mountain bike. And we've got mountain bike trails from my house that are 10 minutes away and via bike. And so it just, it kind of made sense. And so I got my first mountain bike and I loved it and it was fun, but it was still, I just found mountain biking kind of terrifying <laughs> and cross was just, it wasn't terrifying. Like, you know, the first year it was you know, learning the handling and figuring out how to ride your bike and steer your bike in mud and in a downhill. And, you know, my bike too, at the time, your first entry level cross bike and with canties, you could never slow down anyways. Uh, I think some people might not even know what that is. Like people that have been <laughs> in cycling that long, they're like, what's, what's a canty? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's so funny going back. So I hadn't been back to the, um, the Zolder world cut over those Christmas races since I was on canties. And I do these races and I'm like, oh, this is no big deal. But like my first time over there, they've got some steep drops over there. And I'm like, oh, we used to ride these on canties. Like this is nothing compared to like having disc brakes now. Nothing is scary to me on those courses. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, mountain biking just seemed a little bit, you know, more intimidating with, you know, more obstacles and cross just was challenging in a different way that. I wasn't as intimidated and scared of it as I was of mountain biking. So that was kind of the avenue that I decided to take. And I felt like I was pretty good at it. It just kind of everything clicked. And what was your first big cross race that you did? It was cross Vegas in 2012. It was three or four days after uh, my wedding. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty funny. And ended up going really well. It was like my first big UCI race. And we decided, because at that time, we got married in 2012. And I was still loving um, racing cross. And the, the kind of thing that is unique to me with cross is that you can only cross when you're racing. Like, you can go on cross rides and ride your cross bike wherever. But, like, you can only really cycle cross when you're racing a cycle cross race. And so you've got, you know, at the time, you know, three months, September October, November to race cyclocross. And so we got married in September and, and I was like, we can't take a honeymoon after our wedding because I don't want to miss any cyclocross. So we planned for a honeymoon in December after the local season ended. And I was looking at that time, like cross Vegas, I had heard so much about it and Interbike, And I was like, Hey, why don't we go to Vegas? We'd never been to Vegas and I'll do the cross race and maybe we can check out Interbike and just kind of like check it all out. And and Chris was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I had no UCI points. I'd never done a UCI race. And yes, I had done like one local UCI race when we used to have them in Seattle. And so I started in the back row of, I think, 50 and ended up finishing 13th. That was when I was like, oh, and Vegas is its own special race, <laughs> right? It's got its own thing. But that was when I realized I was like, huh, I'm like not, I'm not too bad at this stuff. Like, Maybe I should do more UCI races and maybe I'll do nationals. And uh, the local community kind of picked up, helped me get to all the races and it's the rest is history. (laughs) That's so awesome. And I wanted to ask you about expectations because whenever you're starting in the back row, you know, your first UCI race, you probably didn't have super high expectations. You're just there just to kind of see what you could do. And now that you have many years of experience under your belt, you've raced at an incredibly high level. Now, when you show up to a start line, your expectations are different than when they first were at your first races. So like, how do you think expectations help motivate people or even like lack of expectation help motivate people? And how do you think they can harm? You know, I think a lack of expectation can be very, very beneficial and that you don't overthink anything. You just go out there, you race your bike to the hardest of your capability, and you leave it all out there. Whereas when you go into a race with expectations, and this is where I've had to try and kind of shift my mindset a little bit. For me, when I go in and I have expectations, you know, you might maybe not having that great of a race and you go in and you're like, why is that person in front of me? They should never be in front of me. Or like you just, you start thinking about why am I feeling this? Why does this hurt so bad? Like, I feel like I'm suffering. I shouldn't be suffering. And you just 
start kind of going into these negative patterns. I feel like when you have expectations in the middle of a race or when you don't really meet your expectations, you know, at the, at the end of it, it's really easy to get disappointed and end up in this kind of downward spiral. Yeah. So like, this is something that I think about pretty much daily of like, how should we manage our expectations or how should we set goals or how should we set our expectation to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to be pushing ourselves to be our best, but that we're not going to feel disappointed and let down and, and get into that negative spiral. So I try to make sure that I always find a positive from every race. So let's like, the Zolder World Cup, for example, I went over every year that I've gone over to Europe, I kind of had set these expectations up. And when I don't meet them, I get really disappointed. And it leaves me not loving the sport as much as I should and as much as I actually do love the sport. And so, you know, like, I went over for Zolder. And obviously, I would tell myself I didn't have any expectations, but you always do. And I definitely did not finish where I know that I'm capable of finishing, but I had to look at the race kind of as a whole, like not focusing on the result, but looking at what did I do well and what can I work on to help meet my expectations. And so when I look at something and find the positive and say, okay, I know that I did this well, I can build on that for the next race. Yeah. And I think a lot of times our expectations are linked to something that we can't control like a race result is, yeah, like to some extent you can, but really you're racing other people and you can't control how your competitors, how fit they are, if they're having a good day. Um, you can like, there's just things out of your control. So like trying to manage that part of just saying, I'm going to focus on being my best for myself today. And that should be my expectation. I think it's helpful, but it's also really hard because you're judged by on your results. Like people will say, Oh, like <laughs> what place did you come? Or like, you know, sponsors want to see what, what your result is or whatever. So it, it's this really interesting duality of looking at our process and doing our best as being the number one measurement of success and meeting expectations. But then you have this external thing that you have like a time or a result smacked on your back. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I can kind of go into that. Yeah. So I want to talk about and this ties in with expectations and all these different things we we're just talking about is you've had two hip surgeries, two consecutive years in a row. So number one, like, how did you discover that you needed hip surgery? Because like, you're racing <laughs> at a high level, like you're crushing it. And then all of a sudden, like you needed hip surgery. So it kind of dates back to We'll just rewind like way back. I had my first hip surgery on my right side and my right hip actually started to bug me in 2010 and it bugged me for probably a solid year. And at that point it was, I used to run before I really rode bikes. And at that point I gave up running because I couldn't and um, it hurt, it hurt my hip too much. And so I was like, well, I'll just I'll ride my bike. It doesn't hurt. And I somehow survived everything. And then I got into cross and I was able to run, but I could never run to the extent that I used to prior to that. Like I used to go out. That was, I was getting my master's at the time. And before my classes, I used to go out for 10 plus mile runs. And I haven't done that in, since then because <laughs> my hip just was like, nope, nope, no more. Can't do that. And I somehow, I don't know, I nursed it, like giving up running, doing things that irritated it. I just stopped and it eventually didn't really bug me anymore. And then maybe once a year, I would feel it for a day or two and it'd go away. So I started doing UCI stuff in 2012. I started getting back pain in 2012, but I associated it to an increase of travel and with being on planes, traveling to the UCI races and just, you know, learned how to deal with it and work through it. And then, you know, I was progressing within the sport. I had a really good season in 2014. I would kind of say was like my first, like a real breakout season for me. I won my first UCI race. I was on a bunch of podiums. And that following spring in 2015, it was May and I'm pretty sure it was a workout I did in the gym, but maybe it was just a combination and have everything. But I did a workout in the gym and the next day I was pretty sore, 
But then the day after that, I was sore in a way that I knew wasn't good. Like my hip was sore in all new places. It had never been sore before. And then it really started hurting me. And like it started burning a lot. I couldn't sit. I had to, I couldn't run. I stopped being able to do any workouts in the gym. And I thought like, okay, this has happened to me before. I, I can nurse it back. And I just need to stop running. So I gave up running again. And then, like I said, I kind of had to stop doing workouts in the gym. I tried to incorporate them back, but it still would flare up the hip. And at that time, I was working in a gym as a personal trainer. And, you know, anytime I did a demo and an exercise, like my hip would feel okay before. And then I would demo and it'd flare up again. And it was just this like, that was May, May, June, July, August, September. So maybe like four months of me trying to nurse my hip back before the start of the season. And I got it kind of back to okay. And then I was able to incorporate a little bit, maybe like 10 minute runs before it started to irritate me. So I was like, well, 10 minutes is better than zero minutes. And I went out, started the season and I was in Gloucester and I've never missed a ream out before, but of course it was by the beer garden. I missed my ream out <laughs> <laughs> and landed on um, the back tire. And after that race, my hip got so much worse. And it was just that whole season in 2015. It was, my hip was horrible. And it was probably, I would put down to date as one of my worst seasons. And so when I finished the season, I was like, you know, I'm going to focus on time off the bike. And I was getting burnt out on the bike and I'm going to do other activities. I'm going to go to PT, try and figure this out. So then I hung up the bike naturally, like looking back, I don't know what I was thinking and why I ever thought this would be okay. But I was like, okay, I'll do, I'll do some hikes and hiking flared up would flare up my hip. It would make my back hurt. And so I couldn't really hike. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll, tr I'll try running again. And running <laughs> felt okay. <laughs> felt okay for 20 minutes before it was like somebody stabbing a knife in my hip. And then again, I would go out for a run again. And it was the same thing. If 20 minutes in, somebody was stabbing a knife in my hip. And then I remember sitting at a table one day and I would stand up and just get this like shooting pain down my quad. And I was like, I think it's time for me to go to a doctor. <laughs> so this was like early spring of 2016. So I went and this was when I met my ortho. I went in, well, and I got back into PT as well. So I started PT in 2016 and did saw the ortho and he was I didn't have an MRI yet at that time but I had x-rays there and he told me that you have FAI which is femoral acetabular impingement and he had moved my leg around and he was like tell me when it hurts and he did this so the the test for a labral tear and impingement is you know they put your hip up into flexion bend your leg to 90 degrees and then do this little internal rotation with adduction and he went to go move it and was like, tell me when you have pain. And I just sat there biting my lip. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it hurts. And he had barely moved it at all. And he was like, you know, I suspect a labral tear. You should have, you know, 30 to 40 degrees of range of motion. And like, you barely have 10. Yeah, because it hurt so bad. So at that point, I, I had suspected it. But just hearing it was really hard to hear. And so... I left and he was like, surgery, you'd be a surgery candidate if that is something you want. But, you know, do you want an MRI? And I said, yes. And at that time, too, I probably said like four words to him, which was like, yes, let's do an MRI. And no, I don't want surgery. But I did the MRI. MRI came back with the labral tear um, and FAI. And at that point, I think I saw him like a month later, I had been opened up to surgery and he was like, okay, like, I recommend it, you know, sooner rather than later. And I was like, well, I want to race another season. And <laughs> the look on his face was hilarious. <laughs> and my husband was there with me because I was like, 
because I went by myself to the first appointment and just bawled the whole way home and like didn't hear anything you said. And so I made Chris go with me for the second one. But he he was just looked at me and was like, you're going to race like what? And and so I was like, yeah, I think it'll be OK. I'm like, I raced last year with it. And like, I'm pretty sure it was it was torn last fall. Like it hurt. And I survived. And he just was like, OK, sure. But you know, my biggest worry is that you're going to make it worse and I won't be able to repair the labrum and we'll just have to debride it. And I was like, you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take. And he was like, if it gets worse, like, please stop. So I said, okay, like I will, if it gets worse, I'll stop and we'll just schedule surgery sooner. But I really want to, I want to try and get through the season. And why, why did you want to do that? Because it's like you knew eventually that you might need to get surgery. So why at that time did you decide to keep going? This is going to sound so ridiculous <laughs> and so silly, but I didn't want to lose any of my UCI points. <laughs> it's really it makes like sense, though. what it was that yeah. I was like, I want to try. Because at least if I try, I can get through half a season and still have points. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we do it now, I won't be racing in the fall at all. And then they go like you have nothing. And you know the women's field in the U.S. is so competitive. And I worked really hard to mm-hmm. get to where I was and my start positions on the starting grid that I was like, I just can't imagine starting over. And so it was it was a risk I was willing to take. <laughs> And I don't regret it, but it was also a risk that impacted my other hip, which is why I ended up needing surgery on my other side as well. Mm. And like in hindsight, it's, it's always easy to look back and say, well, I should have done this, but like, would you do it the same way? Do you think that you would do it the same way? Or do you think at the time you would have just said, no, like I should do it now? I wouldn't change it at all. I ended up having one of my best seasons in 2016, which like, you know, my surgeon was like, why are you doing surgery if you can race with this? And, and, you know, a lot of people would probably question that. But to me, it was, yes, I could race with it, but it was becoming like not tolerable. Yeah, it's interesting as athletes, like the way that we treat our injuries, especially ones that are considered extreme injuries (laughs) and the way doctors look at you like, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't know why we feel like we should just keep going, but we do. And the way that we perceive pain, the way that we perceive like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Like, I'm just going to keep going. It makes people that aren't really competitive athletes are like, why are you doing that? Yeah, exactly. They kind of look at you like, you're, you're kind of crazy, but like, what do you, what? (laughs) Like, they can't quite wrap their head around it. I remember going in that to fall of 2016 to schedule surgery and um, just kind of as a checkup. And my surgeon was like, if you're racing and it's going fine, like don't do surgery. But like, I feel it. Like it's not comfortable. I'm just racing with it. I'm like I can't drive. Like if I drive on the freeway, I have on cruise control because the simple act of putting my foot on the gas pedal bothers my hip. <laughs> really? And he looked at me and he was like, I think you might be underestimating the amount of pain you're actually in. (laughs) And I think like as athletes, we do, we just kind of tolerate it and a little bit more than the average person. So how did you decide to schedule the surgery? Especially like you're worried about UCI points and losing your points. So like with how you scheduled the surgery, were you going to lose points? I scheduled it for the end of the season. And so my original plan was to have surgery after nationals. And then in December or maybe November, I think I had it scheduled for January for after nationals. And in December, somebody, um, another racer was like, why are you having surge? Like, no, I think that you need to put in, you know, a petition to go to worlds. And I really think that like you're racing really well why would you ruin that? Or why would you not want a petition to race worlds when you can just do it after? And I was like, Oh, she's kind of right. Okay. So then I talked it over with Chris and, and I decided, I was like, you know what I am, I'm going to put in a petition to go to worlds. I'm going to race those last two world cups. At least I'll just plan to do the last two world cups. And if I make worlds, then you know I'll add another week to the trip. And I think it's worth it because I felt like I was having a really good season. 
And so I ended up moving my surgery to after Worlds that year. And I did end up making Worlds. And yeah, it was good. And then you went into your surgery. And then, like, how did you mentally prepare for that? Because you wouldn't be able to walk, like you wouldn't be able to do basically anything. So how could you go into that saying like, this is going to be okay? (laughs) I finished worlds that year and it was in Luxembourg. It was snowy and icy and it was my best worlds. I finished 15th and I got done and Chris was there and I was just like, I can't wait to have surgery. Both my hips were so achy. And at that time I had been told that my left hip was just compensation. And so I was like, okay, like my left hip is hurting from compensating for my right. Like they both hurt. I'm actually looking forward to getting this done. And so to go to your question about that, kind of mentally wrapping my head around it, the surgeon didn't help because he was like, are you sure morning of surgery? Are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) But I was like, I've never, I've never made a decision in my life before that I've been 100% confident that this is the right decision. And so I would said, absolutely. Like I'm ready. I'm ready. I had the room ready. I had all my help lined up. Like I knew I was going to be down and out for the count. And I was, I just mentally prepared myself for a month of that. (laughs) (laughs) And then it became more challenging after that, but it was, I had talked to a lot of people who had had the surgery and that helped to kind of put realistic expectations into what to expect. So how long were you actually off the bike after this first surgery? They want you, most protocols for the hip surgery is that you are on a spin bike for range of motion pretty early. So I got on the spin bike. Well, my surgeon had told me I could get on my bike on a trainer instead of a spin bike. And so I tried that three days after surgery and it was horrendous. So like I couldn't get on the bike. Chris had to lift me up onto the bike and I, you know, your hip is stiff and you're not supposed to activate any muscles. And so I couldn't move the pedals around. And I think I got through five pedal strokes and I was just like, this, this isn't good. Like, no, we're not doing this again. And so then I got on a spin bike and that's, you know, a lot better because it just pretty much moves itself once you get it going. And then I was able to get, I transitioned to my trainer at about four weeks. And so I was able to ride the trainer and you're on the spin bike for 20 minutes. It's nothing. It's my surgeon had to like strictly lay it in. Like this isn't a workout. This is just range of motion. This is not a workout. So I do 20 to 30 minutes on the spin bike. And then once I moved to the trainer, I started at... I think 30 minutes and for the next four weeks. So at the trainer at four weeks and then the next four weeks I was on the trainer. Um, I could go up to an hour and then at eight weeks I was allowed to ride outside on pavement, on flat pavement for 30 minutes. (laughs) Did you obey the rules? Like, did you actually do for 30 minutes? You're like, I'll just do a little extra. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was in his office, this and the appointment and he was like you can go out you know 30 minutes no riding in the rain no riding in the snow and ice and I just looked at him and I was like first of all I'm gonna ride in the rain (laughs) if I if I want to I'm not gonna fall and secondly 30 minutes like it takes me 30 minutes to get dressed exactly and and I live on a hill like and it has to be flat roads like I couldn't leave from my house like everything was just like this you're making it really difficult for me to actually be able to ride my bike but she was like, you can slowly build to an hour for the, that following four weeks. You know, and at, in my head, I had gone into the appointment thinking he would let me ride for two hours. And so I was expecting him to say two hours. Mm-hmm. And when he said an hour, I was like, what? Are you serious? Like only one hour. How about an hour and a half? And he was like, no, very strict. Hmm. And, and so I did. And he was like, please, for your first ride, just do 30 minutes. I don't want you to get out somewhere and irritate the hip. And then you have to get back and it just causes more problems. And I was like, okay, like that's pretty legitimate. And so I did follow his rules. I rode flat roads. I did 30 minutes 
if there was a hill, I made Chris push me up it. <laughs> and then I slowly build up to one hour. And I did one hour for the next month. And then at three months for that first surgery, I was allowed to slowly add time. And you can't stand either. So you have to stay seated, which is really more challenging than one would expect. But at three months with my first hip, I ended up with a lot of SI joint pain. And like, I don't know what happened to my back, but I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk. It was really terrible. And so I got relegated back to the trainer's. And then it wasn't really till like June that I started adding more time than an hour on my bike. So it was four months post-op with that first hit before I was able to kind of really start riding my bike. And something that I, I actually really like about this is that a lot of times when people get sick or injured, they think, oh my gosh, like I didn't ride for a week or I didn't ride <laughs> for a month. And they, they think that they're going to lose all their fitness and it's like starting over from being a beginner again. But we've seen over and over athletes having injuries or surgeries or sicknesses or, or whatever. And they come back and they have these massive comebacks and like, it's not like, sure you you have, you lose fitness and you kind of have to rebuild, but it's not nearly as detrimental as people think it is. Absolutely. And that's what, when people who have been injured and they ask me that and I tell them like your body knows what it's like to be fit and it knows how to get there. And so, yes, it's kind of sucky to be unfit, but you're going to get back to where you need to be. And how did you deal with the identity shift? Because whenever your life is, is training and being fit and feeling strong, and then for four months, it's like, well, I'm only allowed to ride easy on a road or like I can barely move or my day is entirely dedicated to rehab. Like, how do you deal with that shift in identity, even though it's temporary? That was really hard. My first surgery, I really, really struggled with that a lot. I almost threw in the racing towel so many times with that first surgery. I was like, I should go back to school. What am I doing with my life? I really should just quit bike racing and find a job. Maybe I'll go back to school and do do all of these things. And I was like heavily looking into multiple different options for me to do. And it was challenging. But I did kind of keep going back to wanting to race and everything I was doing, I was doing so I could race. And, and at that time too, with my first surgery, I didn't know what I was doing sponsorship wise. And so it was like all really up in the air, even like if I was going to race, if like I didn't have, I didn't have a ton of sponsorship at that time and, or like during those pivotal points in my recovery. And so that was really challenging trying to figure out even if I was going to race and, you know, things do fall into place the way that they're meant to fall into place. And right around that time when I could start training again in June, all of a sudden things, you know, things got rolling and everything happened as it was supposed to. So what advice would you give to people if they are going through an injury and they're having those feelings of, well, maybe I should just quit. Like maybe I should just not continue you know, that's the easiest option, right, is to quit and want to give up. But don't let the negative take over and stay positive and definitely push through because it's worth it. Yeah. And you came back and you had like an amazing season. And like you talked about on your blog, like people were like, I can't believe the comeback she had. What was that like? (laughs) My first season back after racing, it was really good. And everything about the season just blew me out of the water. I was like, I, I had, I went into the season with, you know, talking about expectations with absolutely no expectations. And I think that's why the season was so great is that I didn't know. I was like, you know, these U S world cups, if I can finish in the top 30 and 30th, I'll be happy. And then the first one I finished 20th and then I finished 12th at the second U S world cup. And, and I was like, I've, this is fantastic. And I just kind of kept riding the wave and was like, great. Okay. Well, what's the next one? Okay. And then I won a UCI race and, and then I kept landing on all these podiums and I was like, I feel so good. This is so crazy. How is this happening? And then, you know, I went to nationals and I finished fourth at nationals and, and then I ended up going to worlds and it was just this wild season beyond my, like most expectations of anything that I could had. And, and looking back, I'm like, I think so much of that season was, you know, this just mental letting go of being like, well, I had hip surgery, who knows what's going to (laughs) happen. 
And then how did you come upon having the neck surgery? Like, did you know that that was coming or was it all of a sudden like, oh crap, like now this hip's gone? Um, so I knew my left hip, I had suspects of it, you know, in that season in 2016, but everybody kept saying it was compensation and it'll calm down after surgery. So then I had surgery on my right hip, my first hip. And by about mid June through that recovery, so four and a half months post-op from the first hip, once I was allowed to push a little bit more on the bike and ride a little bit more, because with that, with my second hip, my left side, it really bugged me on the bike the most. And so when I was allowed to push more and ride more, I started feeling it a lot more. And I got done with a ride and I stepped off my bike and I could barely stand on that side. And I was like, yeah, something isn't right. And so I walked into my chiropractor's office and was like, hey, can you order me an MRI? And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't just order MRIs because you ask for them. Uh. <laughs> and so I you know, was like, hear me out. And, you know, I told him the whole story and the whole backstory with, you know, what I think was going on with my left side. And at that point, you know, I know when it went in that 2016 season and it was in a race. And so he said, okay, you know, I'll order you one, but I don't think you have a torn labrum in your hip. And I said, well, you said the same thing with my right hip. And he was like, okay, fair enough. And so we did the MRI and it came back that the labrum was torn. And so I knew that summer before my first season coming back from hip surgery that I was going in to have another hip surgery. So it was very much deja vu with the surgeon. Like, all right, here's the MRI. Okay. Yes. You need another hip surgery. You responded well to the first one. I think you'd be a good candidate for your other side as well. It's just, you know, I assume you're going to race. And I said, yes. And he goes, okay. And he said, same thing as last year you have the potential to shred the labrum. I won't be able to repair it. And I said, it's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> so it's the same thing. You know, at that point, I planned to schedule surgery. I actually, going into the season, I was scheduling surgery for December. And I was like, I'm just going to skip nationals. It's going to be such a crappy season because he kept telling me it wasn't going to be very good. And so I was like, well, I'll just end it in December. It'll give me an even longer recovery time before the next season. Maybe I can squeak in some mountain bike racing. Like, I think that'll be a good plan. And then pff, by October, I was like, heck no, I'm not having surgery in December. <laughs> the season's going so well. and <laughs> It's only been a month. And so I scheduled it for... I decided the season was going really well. I wanted to put in a petition for Worlds again. So I scheduled it for after Worlds. And I ended up having a great season and going to Worlds. And then three days later, went into surgery. And like knowing what to expect, because like the first time you didn't really know what to expect. But the second time you knew what you were getting yourself into. So was it worse knowing what you're getting yourself into or was it better? It was a little bit of both. You know, knowing what I was getting myself into in the, you know, the days and the weeks leading up to it was worse but going through it was better. So I knew what to expect and I knew, you know, what pains were normal and that it was going to be fine to feel that. Whereas with my first surgery, I was like, what is that? Why am I feeling this? Why is this here? Why do I have the same pains as I had pre-op? Like I just had surgery. Shouldn't those pains go away? And, you know, I, I learned what was fine and what was not fine. And I knew the, the timeline of everything and that helped. And coming out of the second surgery, based on some of the posts that you made, you it seems like this time was a little bit harder. Um, why was it harder? It was harder and easier at the you know having knowing what to expect. It was easier. I didn't have as many, I didn't have as much pain with it um, as I did with the first tip, and I didn't have as many flare ups like I did with my first tip. But it was harder in a sense of knowing that I just kind of had to wait in that. I needed to have patience and I felt like I had just done this. Like I've been here and I've done this and I don't want to do this again, but I have to. So like my patience wasn't as good with the second one as it was with the first one. And it was, you know, closer going into the season. It was, I felt like my prep was good going into the season, but I, yeah, just with the whole, everything was just a little different. <laughs> so like, were your expectations, like, cause you know, you came out of the first one and you didn't have expectations and then you ended up like surprising yourself and having an awesome year. And then coming out the second time, like, did you have an expectation that it was going to be the same as last time? 
Absolutely. (laughs) Better. Right. You know, like I wanted to do it better because I wanted to prove to myself that I could be better and I could do better than that. So it was like I, you know, I set these standards the first time in I think as athletes we're just we're so competitive and I wanted to beat myself from the year before and it didn't work out very well. So, yeah. yeah. And like you wrote a blog post that said, I'm not okay. And like you had had a, a mountain bike crash and then you went to do a series of races and it was kind of a rough go. So like, how did you deal with the disappointment? How did you come out of it? Because it seems like everything's going really well now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I am actually still dealing with that. Well, still have a lot. So my mountain bike crash, I decided to, um, four days before my first race, launch myself off of a drop. And in the, pouring, <laughs> <laughs> in the pouring rain and I was wearing baggies and I had put a multi-tool in the side pocket of the baggies and I launched myself off this drop and I'm in the air and I was like, oh, this isn't going to land well. And I landed. I was like, maybe I can save it. And I landed with a lot of speed and hit some roots kind of high sided and then flipped off and landed on the multi-tool in my pocket. And so I think it was that multi-tool that did the damage. So if it wasn't in my pocket, I'm like pretty convinced things could have been better. But I had hematoma like the size of a grapefruit or larger on my like IT band lateral quad. And I couldn't walk for like a week, a little over a week. It was really brutal. And I don't know why I had expectations going into the first race. I ended up sitting out. I was supposed to race Reno. I sat out Reno because I it hurt. And um, was like, well, I'm going to race the World Cup because, like, it's a World Cup and I'm going to do it. And that was a week after the crash. And I don't know why I had expectations. And I don't know if I, like, had expectations, but I did. And I was basically pedaling with one leg. And I was in so much pain. And... And the whole thing and like the pain, it was, is this pain in my leg? Because when I, with my hip on that side, a lot of my pain was very lateral. And so it was through the lateral TFL and like the whole like hip groin would start burning, but so much lat, like pain through that lateral hip. And, and that just happens to be where like just a little bit lower from where that pain point was is where I crashed and had a ton of pain through there. And so with that World Cup race, I just, all of these flashes and, and like memories of how bad my hip would hurt when I was racing with it was coming back. And I didn't know what the pain was from. And if the pain was from the actual hematoma or if it was coming from my hip. And so it was, it was like a disappointment, but also just the scary thought of, like, did I ruin my surgery? Did I ruin my hip in that crash? Like, is it not okay? Did I go through all of that for nothing? And, you know, I didn't just put in seven, eight months, seven months of work to have it just go down the drain. So it, it was just the series of emotions. And I had put in for a year and a half, really, like 17, 19 months of recovering from hip surgeries and only thinking about my hips and only being injured. And it just all came crashing down and it was rough. (laughs) So like, how did you continue on through that? Because there's a lot of people that would want to give up. And also, you know, you had already had those feelings before. So like, how did you get over that feeling? I knew I needed to step back from racing. I knew, you know, with my surgeries, it was like this timeline. I have seven months to prepare for the season. And so with this crash, it was kind of the same thing. Like I have one week to heal up from this crash. So at that point, you know, I wrote that blog and cause I was like, I'm not, I need to step back. I need to give my mind a break and not set up these timelines for myself to heal by this point and be ready to race by this point. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to take an entire month off and I'm going to do what I want to do at home. And like, did you not ride for a month or did you just take a month off from racing? I took a month off from racing. I definitely like, I love to ride my bike. It's if there should be like a one, actually I love all exercise, (laughs) (laughs) but like the, just the sense of enjoyment and freedom that my bike gives me is just, 
I, whether I'm racing or not, I'm always going to ride my bike. And so I just, I got home and just not having that sense of this pressure to race through pain just really helped kind of calm me down. And so I did ride and I did train. I took a, a week off of like any structured training and I just rode if I wanted to ride. I did whatever length ride I wanted to do. I went on, I did ended up being all long rides. We had a beautiful October. So that helped a lot, but I did, you know, routes that I hadn't done in years because of surgery. And it was just really enjoyable to be home for the fall. And I um, tried to do more things outside of just the bike. And I hung out um, with my friends and got to go to the pumpkin patch and carve pumpkins and like things that you just, you don't do in the middle of the cross season because you're so focused on racing and training and, and recovering. And, and to me, it was, I needed to take that month to more recover, you know, obviously physically, but also I needed, my brain needed to take a break. And so then at that point too, I started working with Kristen Kime for sports psychology and to kind of help me work through just in process everything. Mm -hmm. Can you give people some insider tips on some things that you did because you were (laughs) able to get through it, which is amazing. You, You know, the thing that resonated the most with me that Kristen had said And I still think about it. And it was one of these things that I had to constantly remind myself. But she was like, we need to shift your brain from thinking that you're an injured athlete to you're an athlete. And she's like, you stop thinking of yourself as injured. And you're doing these, you know, your PT. And these are things that you just need to do to be the athlete and do the job that you need to do. And that was number one, the best thing that got me through everything. And so, you know, after that, I go on these rides and just tell myself over and over and over again on the ride, like you're not injured. You're not going to feel this pain that you have felt on your bike before. You're not going to feel that you're not injured. You're, you're just an athlete. And that helped shift a lot of my focus and the feelings that she's like, stop focusing on if you feel something, don't freak out. Like everybody feels something like you're not injured. And that, that helped a lot. Cool. And I wanted to ask you about just your commitment to PT, because that's something that I really enjoyed watching throughout your recovery process. Both times is like, you had your whiteboard of all the things you needed to do. (laughs) You had your assortment of all your special gadgets. And like, I think a lot of times as athletes, we want to just do the sport, like our running or our cycling or, or whatever it is. And then the actual rehab and restorative process, we just say, I don't have time for that. Or I don't feel like it. And it's like, I'm really guilty of that. So from a motivation standpoint, how do you stay motivated to stick with that? Especially after like, now you're not, you know, in the same type of recovery as you were when you were recovering from surgery. So how do you stick with that? I feel like I might be a little bit of a special case. So little known fact that I used to teach group fitness and, you know, worked as a personal trainer. So I taught aerobics. I taught strength classes. Like I love that stuff. (laughs) And so to me, it's not, it's not staying motivated because it's something I love. Like, just like I love riding my bike. I love doing strength. I love doing the PT. I love going to the gym and all that stuff makes me happy. So it's just an easy thing for me to add in. Yeah. And I think that's really cool that you had that background because that definitely helps with commitment and and staying focused. To wrap things up, I'd love for you to give a couple of hip mobility stretches, hip like mobility exercises and or stretches that people could incorporate as cyclists. Oh, you've probably seen all my Instagram stories. (laughs) I have a big thick band that like people call them the CrossFit bands. And I use that for some hip, they're called hip mobilizations. And I will take my favorite one that I do is the figure four one. And I'll try to describe it my to the best of my ability. But that is having the band looped around like a pole or in a strapped in a door and then you lie on your back and make the figure four and you have the band like all the way up into your hip crease and then hang out there for one to two minutes and I think that just like my hips are so tight that it feels so good and probably for most cyclists it'd feel amazing as well could you send me a picture of that or a a picture of each of these and we'll put it in the show notes yeah for sure 
another one I think that a lot of cyclists could probably use is a pigeon pose in yoga. That is a really good one. And then I think it's double pigeon where you're seated. I believe that's double pigeon is the name, but that's another one I love to do for my hips. It's really great for that TFL and that like really gets my glute made as well because those are really tight. And then the last one with that band again would be a, you have it strapped to a pole or in the door and you're in a half kneeling position facing the anchor point of the band and you have it looped around the leg with the knee that's on the ground. And I'll send you a picture of this one as well. And so it's opening up the front of the hip and it's just the most amazing stretch for the hip flexors and that front of the hip region. Awesome. I'd say those, those three. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Like you've shared, you've shared so much great insight, like talking about expectations and identity and how to deal with injury and how to, how to get through it when you want to give up. And I think that it's really helpful because we feel really isolated whenever we have all these feelings and knowing that other people have been through it too is super helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where, where can people get a hold of you? You can find me on my Instagram which is just my name, Courtney McFadden, and it's Courtney, <laughs> uh, if I'm saying how it's spelt. Or my, my blog slash website, it's a great way. There's a little contact me page that if you want to just get a direct email to me, that's a great spot as well. Awesome. And you guys should definitely check out her blog. She has a lot of fun posts, and I think I've read almost all of them now. <laughs> yes, I'm your number awesome. one fan. <laughs> yeah, thanks for reading. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I really like Courtney. I love her laugh. And I remember whenever I first met her, it was at Sea Otter years ago. We had a sponsor in common. And I remember just how happy and fun she was to be around. And it's been really fun to be following her ever since. Check out her hip stretches. I listed them out in the show notes. So if you want to just Google, there's a bunch of different videos you can watch. I didn't want to link specifically to any one website because everybody has a different way that they like to get stretches. Some people like to read it. Some people like to watch a video, but that is one of the hardest things is the self-care portion of being an athlete because we think, and I'm totally guilty of this myself, we think that most of the work is getting the bike ride done, getting the run done, but then the self-care portion is what gives us longevity through the long run of the sport. and. I know that whenever I start skipping on rehab or yoga or things like that, then I start feeling these weird niggling injuries. So one of my goals this year is to try to be more consistent with that. And so far I've been doing an okay job. I give myself like a B minus. Make sure you check out Courtney's Instagram. She just got back from Belize. So she has some really awesome pictures from her vacation. And I think that she's gonna be getting back after it. I saw in one of her posts recently, she said it's the first time in two years where she's spending the off season not injured and she can actually train in the off season. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode with her. And if you're really enjoying the show and you wanna support my work, I have a Patreon page or account where you can go on there, you can donate just a few bucks a month to the show. And it really makes a difference to help the production and growth and to make sure that we can keep this thing going. I love podcasting and it's definitely a labor of love. And I really appreciate those of you who are supporting my work on there. So if you want to get on there, you want in, it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show and is also in the show notes. All right, guys, thank you so much for being here. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.